Good morning. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of James. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 from the English Standard Version. My brothers and sisters, do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and a poor person enters in filthy clothes, do you pay attention to the one who is finely dressed and say, you sit here in a good place, and to the poor person, you stand over there or sit on the floor? If so, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, did not God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich oppressing you and dragging you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to? But if you fulfill the royal law as expressed in this scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For the one who obeys the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do commit adultery but do not commit murder, you have become a violator of the law. Speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. For judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again. My name is Peter, and uh, I am one of the pastors here. Today we're going to talk about new mercy, James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. Last week, we looked at James chapter 1, the second half of it, and we made the point that we as human beings look on the outside, the outer matter of things. Our vision can't penetrate beneath the skin, so to speak. But God has a kind of x-ray vision, and he is always tracking not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. He's always looking at the heart. And we made a point, sub-point, that the thing that God is always looking at is our heart's grace orientation as opposed to a works orientation. That in God's eyes, we are all the same, all in need of help. And God's job, his work, is to help us, not because we asked for help or because we deserve the help, but because he is helpful. And he loves us. And that's a grace orientation. A works orientation is, I'm going to fix myself. I'm going to survive. I'm going to thrive and flourish based on my own competence, based on my ability to do better than others or to put others down or step on them to get taller. And that's sort of the two choices we have before us. In James chapter 2, he continues that same message. And what we're going to say is that God is always tracking our hearts and he's looking for what we would call today mercy. Mercy is the big word of the day. Start with this verse, 13b. 
Okay, let's, on the count of three, let's say this together out loud. Three, two, one. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Two ways to look at the world. Two ways to view ourselves. It's either through the framework of mercy or the framework of judgment. Hard as we try to stay in the middle or something that's a combination of both, we usually land on one or the other. Naturally, we view ourselves, we tend to view ourselves through the lens of judgment. And then we take that same lens and apply it to other people. And so we tend to be judgmental. But James is saying we ought to view people through the framework of mercy. James is asking the question, what has the power to help, to change, to redeem, and ultimately, ultimately to save? Mercy or judgment? And James is saying, mercy wins every single time. Judgment ultimately is unable to be helpful. Now, this is an interesting uh, juxtaposition that James sets up because in my experience, in my feeling, in the sort of the ra- as the rational being that I am, I often feel obligated to be judgmental. I have to judge a situation. I have to look at it through the eyes of judgment. You know, and I do this, you know, whether I'm interacting in a small way at the grocery store, whether I'm interacting with my family members or my friends or colleagues or all of you or the world in general, I tend to feel like it's my job to judge. I have to sort of help God do his work. I do. I feel that way. And I feel like I'm sort of detracting from the quality of our earthly existence if I don't judge. If I let this one go, which is my shallow and pathetic understanding of what mercy is, if I just let it go, then nobody is helped. So I have to sort of bring in truth. I have to shine the light and I have to make a call and call it bad and point out what's better. I just feel that way. Now, I started thinking about this some more and uh, I started making a list of all the different expressions of judgment that I tend to resort to. And then I asked the question, do these work? So my first one that I came up with is condemnation. I guess this is something I've mentioned before, but I guess if I'm honest, I love to condemn people. And I really think you do too. It just feels so good to condemn somebody. You know, because they're in the jail cell. It's like, a, like only one person fits. So I can't be in there if you're in there. So I need to stick somebody in there. Oh, what a relief when somebody else messes up, you know? So there's condemnation, close cousin, there's demeaning. Maybe I don't fully condemn you, but I just want you to feel really bad and inferior to me. Just like I could put you in jail. And it's just, I'm going to be just nice enough to not throw you in and lock the door, but you belong in there, and I want you to know that. And then there's criticism. Godman, the Godman Institute talks about the difference between criticism um, and complaining, a complaint versus a criticism. And a complaint is specific. You know, Peter, your sermon 
minutes six to seven, not the best I've heard. Got a little fuzzy. That's a valid complaint, right? A criticism is what I hear, which is, you suck. You're a terrible preacher. Are you good at anything? Just go hide somewhere. Just go sulk in your shame. That's kind of like what I have to battle every week. It doesn't matter what you tell me when you're heading out the door, what email you send. I just kind of have to wash off the shame of being in front of people. So that's one major tool, con condemnation, demeaning, and criticism. Another one is sort of the opposite, less engaged. It's distancing, abandoning, stonewalling, and avoiding. Basically, uh, this expression of judgment is withholding love and belonging from you or from myself. This is what I feel I deserve. Licking my wounds by myself or sending you off to go lick your wounds. Another one is anger. I have found, surprisingly, that anger is not helpful. And I say surprise because I'm surprised every time. I'm like, I blew up five minutes ago. Why are you still the same way? You know, that didn't work. It didn't do it this time. I could have sworn. Uh, what about controlling people? I do that sometimes. Not as much. I wouldn't say I'm super controlling. But I do try to do this. And it also doesn't work. You know, controlling is a form of judgment. It's because it's saying, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're going to do, whatever you're aware of, it's going to fail. So let me control you. That's me judging you, prejudging you. It's like a minority report situation there. Unforgiveness. If I can withhold forgiveness from you, maybe you'll feel that and improve. You've heard about resentment or unforgiveness as the poison that you drink hoping the other person will die. It, it doesn't help anyone. What does it do? What about just straight-up hatred and contempt? I've tried that. Also, it turns out, it's not helpful. What about self-righteousness? It's a little bit more passive-aggressive. It's happening more on my own heart level, but me believing in some way that I'm better than you. Now, this is something I'm so familiar with, and I believe we all do this. This is sort of how we show up in the world. It's how we connect to each other because this is how we feel about ourselves. There's a lot of judgment happening. And because of this, we're losers. Literally, mercy wins or triumphs over judgment every time. And if I break down what judgment is this way, I realize it's obvious that none of these would work. None of these would show up in any parenting handbook or relationship book. In what scenario is condemnation helpful? Why do I keep resorting to it? In what relationship does it pay to just hate somebody? Just to seethe with anger and judgment. It doesn't work. And yet, this is our go-to. And the question is, why? Why do we keep doing this? And the answer is, this is what I know as a fallen human being. Now, if you're here and you don't believe in how mankind fell, uh, I just would love an explanation for why we are so judgy. 
Why do we do this? Because we're insecure, because we're insufficient, because we have fallen short. There is some inadequacy and something that's incomplete about us as human beings. And so we're grasping for something. We're sort of our born grasping, feeling the need to complete ourselves in some way. And I have been doing this my whole life, and it's penetrated every aspect of who I am. And this is the only way I know to relate to the world and to myself. Now, years ago, as I was discovering the gospel, I began to grapple with the fact that God is merciful towards me. And at first, I liked it. And then I didn't like it because I started asking the question, why does God have to be merciful? Am I that bad? Because really, mercy at its heart is an indictment. It's saying you need mercy. It's saying if God isn't merciful, you fall short. You're going to fail in life. You're not going to make it. And so there's a core part of us that resists God's mercy We don't like it because it implies bad things about us. But what if it's true? What if we really do need mercy? What if that's our only hope? So a few years ago, I started just wrestling with this more, uh, confronting this truth. And I came to understand that there is a core part of me that is arrogant and proud. And we talked about arrogance and pride a little bit last week. I said arrogance is believing you are great. You sincerely believe you're good in some way. And pride is uh, uh, related to that. It's knowing you're not, but feeling like you should be. So that's how you front. That's how you lead. And I realized this about myself. And I've been trying to take God's view of me. His mercy stands towards me and sort of, drive it to the center of my heart. And it's mostly there. A lot of it is there. But what I, here's what I'm finding. It basically takes a lifetime for mercy to penetrate every aspect of my life. That even if it's in my heart, for it to reach the outer recesses of my being and how I relate to the world, it takes a lifetime. There are so many little ways Judgment keep showing up. And mercy has still a long ways to go to penetrate every aspect of my identity and functioning in this world. And I think that's true for a lot of Christians. In a deep sense, we do understand what mercy is, that we need it, that we're saved by it, that it's all we have. But on on day-to-day life, it sort of feels like we have to resort to what we know. It's like our strong hand. You know, most of us in this room are right-handed. It's sort of our right hand that's the judgment. And we have this weaker arm, mercy. And it feels awkward. We don't really know how to be coordinated with it. We wouldn't resort to it in an emergency. But that's God's call to us. It's in the midst of panic, when something's happening to you, When you don't know what's going on, run to mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is better. Mercy actually works. It's not counterproductive. It's going to be actually productive. 
It'll be effective. It'll do the job. Judgment always ultimately fails its initial mission, and everybody loses out. That's what it means that mercy triumphs over judgment. And I know this. When I look at the deconstruction of what judgment looks like, condemnation, demeaning, and criticizing, of course it doesn't work. But it's what I know. But it's not who I am called to be. And so today, really, the um, challenge is, how do we drive mercy to the core of our being and allow it to propagate and fill the way we live and move and have our being. Because it really is the only way to live. So why doesn't judging work? Let's think about this. Let's break it down a little bit more. Verse 1 says, Do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we see that judging is antithetical to what it means to have faith in Jesus. You know, you hear the criticism all the time. Christians are so judgy or Christians are judgmental. You hear this as an argument against Christ and against Christianity. It's really unfortunate that that's what precedes the faith because here James says actually judging is antithetical to our faith in Christ. The first thing that needs to be addressed if you claim to know Jesus is your propensity to be judgmental. Because the faith itself is defined as God judging Christ instead of you. Judgment has passed over you because the blood of Christ has been spread on your heart. That's what Christian faith is. And so for us to now turn around and still be judgmental, in fact, more judgmental, because now we have some Christian ethic by which to judge people, it's contrary to faith in Christ. That's the first thing that we see here in verse 1. Second thing we see is that when you judge, it's based on prejudging. Prejudice. You judge without the capacity to know the whole story of the person you are judging. We do not have eyes that can peer into somebody's soul and understand how they're wired and what God's work in them is and what God's purpose for them is. How dare we play God and judge somebody without knowing the whole story? It doesn't matter what a person has done. You may be familiar with some shallow surface understanding of some act or some trait, but you do not know who they are and why. God, on the other hand, sees us to the very, very bottom. He's tracking us in ways that are not even known to ourselves. He knows us intimately. He has weaved us together, the Bible teaches. We think love is blind, that love sees less, that we love because we don't really know somebody. 
How would you like to roommate with your neighbors today? You don't want that. That's going to ruin the relationship, right? At least stress it. But God loves us not because he sees less, but because he sees more. He sees everything. He alone understands. When you're going to bed at night and everybody in the world has misunderstood you, be comforted knowing that God understands better than you understand. There's nothing you can explain to God that he doesn't already comprehend in multiple dimensions. He knows us. And therefore, he doesn't judge us. Our judgment is always shallow. Verse 3 says, do you pay attention to the one who is finely dressed? Yeah, that's what I do. I scan the room, and I see what I see, and I think what I think, and I base this judgment on nothing that's significant. My judgment is really, really partial. And judgment is driven by a works orientation. My judgment is always rooted in my need to preserve and propagate the self. Imagine, imagine you stand before a judge who has evil motives. Would you choose such a judge? But yet that's what we are. We're always somehow wrapped up in our pride and arrogance and our need to survive. And ourselves are always in the way of the view we need to have of the person. The reason we can't fully see each other is because we are blocked by our own self. None of us are impartial. We're all prejudiced. We have prejudgments. Verse 4 become judges with evil motives. All human judging is duplicitous. There is always more than one motive when we judge. What if there's a judge speaking a sentence over you? And they speak the sentence that all your finances, your property, everything that belongs to you, you should be stripped of because you have forsaken the right to own anything. But guess who gets to take it from you? The judge. Would you trust such a judgment over you, spoken by a judge who seeks to gain from their judgment over you? And yet that's what we are when we judge. The drive. I'm not talking about your thinking. I'm not you talking about your analysis of the situation or your psychological read of the person. None of that. But the thing that those things rest on, your drive, your motive for judging is always self-serving in some way. That's the truth. You have never judged someone without gaining something in that judgment, there's some kind of personal gain, psychological, social, or economic. We judge because we want to judge. We're resorting to judgment as a way to better ourselves. Judges with evil motives. And then verse 7. Do they not blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to? Do you know that God has an image problem? 
He needs like a marketing team or something. Because Christians continue to give God such a bad name. Because even a non-Christian, people who don't understand the gospel, that the gospel is really about mercy, even if they don't understand it, they have some innate understanding that if you claim to belong to God, you shouldn't be as judgmental at the least. And yet, religious people are known for being more judgmental, so they have no choice but to blaspheme the good name of the one to, one, to the one you belong, to whom you belong. We instinctively know that judging is antithetical to God's person, to God's purpose, and to God's people. It doesn't jive with God. It doesn't make sense. And then finally, verse 10 and 11, this is really the the big law that uh, James is invoking here, why we ought not to judge. For the one who obeys the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a violator of the law. You ready? This is the final argument why we ought not to judge. That is, whenever I judge, it's impossible for me to judge you without invoking the law. Because... By the very act of judging, I am saying there's something impartial here that you're breaking. It's not just an opinion or a preference I'm, I'm uh, uh, communicating here, but you violate a universal standard by which you should operate. So when I'm shitting on you, I have to invoke the law, something greater and bigger than myself. Otherwise, there's no power because it's just an opinion. Right? The whole reason I want to bring this up in the first place is because I have a should for you. And should means it's beyond my opinion. So I have to invoke the law. And if I invoke the law, guess what? I have to immediately defend myself against the law. Honey, why do you keep nagging me? And the implication is I never nag. I never nag. But what is nagging? Nagging is pointing to somebody who's not bearing the responsibility they ought to bear. They're being irresponsible. They're being unloving. And so maybe I don't nag, but I'm not being responsible. And so it is impossible to talk about a violation of the law without being under the law yourself. And if you talk about one little corner of the law, somehow you're responsible for the whole of the law. And the question James is asking is, do you really want to go there? Is that how you want to play the game? You want to do this? Okay. If you want to do this, let's do it. Let's talk about everything. And we do this in arguments, don't we? If somebody brings something up, we start going further and further back into the past to build a whole case. 
It's just what we do. We immediately think about ways that we all have violated the law. This is naturally where we go to because we understand that it's impossible to talk about the law without being under it ourselves. And look what verse 13 says. For judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy. That's what happens. If you pursue the law, you get the law. You get the law. Not they. You get the law. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It is so tricky to talk about anything from up here because I'm so scared for my own life. I've had this dream of doing a marriage series uh, for a few years now here at the church. And I have my own reasons for that, but it's not because I think I have a great marriage. But I'm afraid of what will happen to my marriage if I have to talk about my marriage. I mean, even if nothing happens... The way you view my marriage, at least during the time of that series, is going to be a little bit different. You're going to say, hmm, Peter talked about X. I wonder how X plays out in their marriage. And you're just going to look a little bit longer, a little bit harder. It's just what happens. Because now I've talked about it. It's out there. It's creating a focal point for you. So I don't want to talk about marriage. It's just too hard. Too tricky because of this very thing. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What's the alternative? What are we supposed to do? How do we then live? How do we relate to each other? Verse 12 and 13 says, Speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. For judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So mercy is also a law, but it's a law not that leads to condemnation or incarceration, using the metaphor I used earlier, but it gives freedom. It actually sets the other free. It creates freedom for you, and it creates freedom for me. And here is how freedom happens. Freedom happens when justice is served, meaning there's punishment that's meted out, and at the same time, the perpetrator of the crime is able to experience change, reform, renewal. And there is a redemption, meaning all of the damage they've caused, all of the butterfly effect of change, of uh, havoc that you've wreaked all over the planet your whole lifetime that you don't know about, but there's been ramifications of all the ways you've done wrong. All of that is somehow undone and made actually even better for it. We need those three things. We need punishment, we need transformation, and we need redemption. How can all of that happen? Because that's the only way that I can see that we are free. And the answer is 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. This is so interesting. Because the reason I judge is because I'm trying to grasp at power. And then Paul, the gospel, says actually the way power comes is not through judging, but through mercy. It comes through weakness, not strength. 
So when you start by acknowledging the fact that you are weak, that you cannot, ought not, should not, will not judge, that's you being weak. And when you do that, now you have access to power that's able to punish, to transform, and redeem. Judgment doesn't lead to power. It's mercy that gives you access to power. Mercy leads the way to open the door to resources that are prior to that unknown to us. So how do we get at mercy? Fleming Rutledge, the crucifixion, understanding the death of Jesus Christ. Wonderful quote. Okay, there's three slides of it. I'm going to read it for us. There have been many famous deaths in world history. We might think of John F. Kennedy or Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but we do not refer to the assassination, the guillotining, or the poisoning of these characters. Such references would be incomprehensible. The use of the term crucifixion for the execution of Jesus shows that it still retains a privileged status. When we speak of the crucifixion, even in this secular age, many people will know what is meant. There is something in the strange death of the man identified as son of God that continues to command special attention. This death, this execution above and beyond all others continues to have universal reverberations. Of no other death in human history can this be said. The cross of Jesus stands alone in this regard. The key to Jesus is now, as it has always been, his crucifixion and resurrection. The Jesus proclaimed as Lord in the New Testament comes closer than any other figure known to human history to being universal, transcending, time and historical location, belonging to all cultures and all people everywhere and forever. This proclamation of Jesus as Lord arose out of the unique apostolic proclamation of the crucified and risen one. Christianity is the only religion that satisfies justice, that satisfies change, that satisfies redemption. There is no other religion where God dies for the people that it claims to love. Christianity satisfies the punishment quota that we all feel. The reason we punish each other and ourselves is because punishment is deserved. And punishment must take place for justice to be satisfied. The fact that we're terrible human beings in that we punish and judge each other is proof that there is an existential, philosophical, theological, and rational need for punishment. And Christianity comes and says, Jesus was punished on our behalf. And all requirements of justice and punishment were satisfied on the cross of Christ. That means that you and I are released from the obligation we feel to judge one another. Hey, folks, I know you love God, but God says, let me do my job. 
Stop trying to do my job. Stop judging people. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Furthermore, it's all been done already. Our punishment, the punishment we deserve, has been poured out on Christ. And by the shedding of his blood, we have been cleansed of our sin. We feel the stain on our souls, don't we? But that's been cleansed. And God has given us the very same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead has been given to us. And the spirit lives in us, causing us to change. It's propagating the reality of mercy into the corners of our being so that over the course of a lifetime, we can be redeemed and saved. This is the gospel. And so, verse 12, speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. If you are going to be judged by the law of mercy, then let judgment go. The law of judgment, let it go. Break up with it today. You don't need it. You don't want it. It doesn't do any good. Just let it go. Let God do the judging. Judgment is merciless for the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. How do you know you are forgiven? This is, an, this is a question that Jesus answered in one of his parables. How do you know you have experienced mercy? It's not because you feel it. That's not the proof. It's not because you had a moment or because you've labeled yourself a Christian. The way you know, according to Jesus, is if you have been forgiven, you will now be able to forgive. That's what Jesus said. If the king has forgiven you your debt, you will be able to forgive others' debts. That's the one way we know we have mercy as our framework. Forgiveness. Let me end with this. Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. I know some of us have asked the question. I think I've run out of God's mercy. I've messed up too many times. My sin is too long, too deep. It's been too perpetual. It's an addiction. It's a habit. I'm defined by it. There's no hope for me. And yet it says his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we give you thanks today for your mercy. We ask you for, for your forgiveness, for being so judgmental and giving just a bad reputation to what it means to be a Christian. We confess we don't really understand how to handle something so good, so all-encompassing, so powerful like mercy. Mercy gives us access to you by whom we are saved. And so, God, I pray for each person in this room. Help us to grow in this framework. Help us to keep decreasing in judgment and increasing in mercy, thus proving, showing that we are 
forgiven. God, I pray for those of us in the room who feel judgment on us from self, from others, feel small and worthy of shame and disconnection. Call those of us to yourself and back to the fold, I pray, by your mercy. God, we love you indeed because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.